1: Every month of the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, August 30th, 2011. Now, I apologize ahead of time. I'm going to be doing my light edition today. I, With everything else I've been working on, I had to move some things around, and so I'm doing the light edition today, and it's a fantastic lecture. Have you ever wondered how it is that uh, American evangelicals are so skilled at misquoting the Old Testament and making about them? Well, you're going to find out the historical reason why that happens today on a dish- on Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you think biblically, help you think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of of crazy things being said out there, and as a result of it, we've got to do the discernment work to see if what's being said is really actually what God's Word says. Um, there's so much bad preaching, so such a bad hermeneutic uh, that goes on that's kind of in the water of American evangelicalism that has actually been there since the beginning. Yeah, You're going to find out the history of this today. Now, if you remember back a few months ago, we played a series of lectures by Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis of Concordia, California, out there in Irvine. Uh, he's uh, he's one of the history profs there, and he did a series of lectures on Pietism. This is what he did his doctorate in. Well, he's uh, he's in the middle of a series of lectures on Christianity in America, and uh, and y- what you're going to find out in today's lecture, as you listen to Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis, is is that um there's a there's a long running tradition and I mean that in the worst possible definition of the word tradition when we talk when Jesus talks about traditions of men he juxtaposes that with what God's word teaches well there's a long running tradition in American Christianity that goes all the way back to its beginning that uh that has this weird Hermeneutic that reads itself or reads our current political ideas into the Bible as if the Bible's about me, as if the Old Testament is about me. You're wondering where did yeah, you know, where did Stephen Furtick learn how to take the Sun Stand Still episode in the story of the book of Joshua and somehow turn that into something about you and me that we're supposed to be doing? Answer. Well, he learned it in the American Christianity that he grew up in, and unfortunately, um, that's not the cor- correct way of handling God's word. So, what we're going to do today is we're uh, we're going to be playing the first in a series of lectures on Christianity in America by Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis, and I guarantee this is going to be um, a little bit controversial and uh, very thought provoking. And you know, I, I'm going to make this clear right up front. Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis is giving this lecture as a Lutheran, and he'll make the point in the early on that uh, what he's doing here is not going to be without judgment. He's going to uh, make judgments. He's uh, he's going to present the historical facts, and he's going to chime in from a Lutheran confessional Lutheran uh, perspective uh, regarding uh, the topic that he's teaching on. So. This uh, this is going to be part one of, of of several parts that we're going to be playing here at Fighting for the Faith. So, um, make yourself comfortable, grab something to write with. Well, actually, you know what I'm going to do? He mentions the fact that he's got uh, handouts that uh, he's made available. Uh, you know, and so I'm going to make those handouts available with the podcast. Uh, so, you know, for all of our listeners out there, that's a, a public service. But here's the deal: um, there's a reason why American Christianity. Um, Uh, looks so different than uh, the Christianity that you read about in the uh, Church Fathers, the Christianity in many senses that you read about in the New Testament. And uh, there's a long-running tradition here, and uh, you're going to find out the roots of that tradition on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis, Christianity in America, lesson number one, introduction and Puritans in the New World. Here we go.
2: So we'll go ahead and get started, and as people come in, um, I just want to take a few minutes uh, to, to, to just explain uh, what we're going to be doing uh, in the next couple weeks uh, and, and exactly where we're going. Uh, I have a handouts for you. Uh, now, we're going to be putting these up on the website uh, as well with the videos when the, when the videos get up. What I'm going to do, um, because of the, the nature of, of what I'm trying to do here uh, with a little bit of history and hopefully interesting history for, for most of us, um, is, is I'm going to have these handouts every week during this series, you'll get a new handout, and the old handout will also be available. For, so if you miss a week, you can grab that. I'm not saying that what I'm saying is so important that you can't miss any of it, or you know you'll be you know, uh, less of a, a person. Uh, but I, I want to make sure we're, we're doing this. Uh, most historians, when they, they pick up the discipline. When they start to uh, to get into the the higher levels of the academic uh, history, is they start with a question. They want to understand something, and for some people, it's they want to understand why was that archway, that particular shape, or how come those people wore those funny haircuts or or the like. And one of the main questions that I've always had before I even became uh, something of a a middling uh, professional historian was, what is up with American Christianity? It seemed weird to me. Now, I'm not going to give you autobiography here, but I didn't grow up in the church, And even though I didn't grow up in the church, I was always fascinated with K-Wave, if you know that radio station, with Calvary Chapel, growing up right here with the big uh, Rick Warren church. It was always very fascinating. And so I suppose the question uh, as I got into uh, the history in general and Western and American history was... What's going on with American Christianity? And so that's the end game. That's where we're going to. So the, it's, it's both um, kind of academic or historical in the sense that I want to answer a question. How did we get here? But then also we're going to put a practical spin on this. And that is, what does that mean for us as Lutherans in the Missouri Synod? What does that mean for us as Lutherans in the Missouri Synod in Southern California the, the hotbed, and perhaps the birthplace of the modern mega church, as we'll talk about later with Calvary Chapel and, and uh, then, of course, uh, Rick Warren's church. So that's where I'm going to get uh, practical. But one of the things I've realized, and one of the things that's fantastic about this church uh, in particular, uh, is that we have a wide spectrum of people here, even people I see today. And so uh, when myself or, or, or Dr. Rosenblatt or other uh, people... Uh, are, are, are talking about uh, things important to our faith and our church. We have a wide audience. Here at Faith Lutheran Church, uh, we have everything from the, the Lake Wobegon Lutheran. Uh, if anyone knows that reference, you probably are something like one. And, uh, you know, that's where all the women are strong, the men good-looking, and the children are above average. That, that, you know, we've got those, right, the sort of lifelong. And then we've got the, the outsider, the ex-evangelical, Or the person that doesn't quite understand it yet, but is is here because they find something attractive and different, an antidote uh, to American Christianity. Now, let me tell you briefly the method as we'll go about these things. This is not going to be, despite the handouts and the little pencils, there are no quizzes, there are no term papers. If you want to start thinking about your grocery shopping later or the football game, that's fine. Uh, This is not going to be hardcore academic but I am by training a historian. By trade, I'm a professor. But here at Faith Lutheran, I'm a layman. Now, the first and the third are going to converge. That is, I am a historian, but also a layman. Now, as a layman, as a Lutheran who holds to the book of Concord, does that mean that I can't be objective or that we can't be objective looking at the history of the church and, and Lutheranism? Uh, n- no. Of course we can be objective. We don't have these presuppositions that don't allow us to look at history or any facts uh, with, uh, you know, objectivity. And the second question is, well, does that mean if I'm, not going to, if I'm going to be objective, is this going to be sort of judgment-free history? Am I just going to report the facts and only the facts? and say, and then this man named so-and-so started this one church, and, hey, I'm not going to judge. It's just what he did. No, I'm going to judge. I enjoy it. It is quite, it's fun. You should try it from time to time. Now, let me tell you, this judgment should be based on fact, okay? This judge, don't, don't walk around saying, hey, just let, you know, whatever, and don't walk around saying, oh, Lady Gaga, I'm going to get you. You know, what, you want to make sure that it's based on, on fact, so we're going to learn the facts, and then I'm going to judge. And you here can agree with me or disagree with me, and you there, you probably, well, I don't know. Uh, you can probably find my email somewhere on the web, and I will I got some of those with the last uh, lessons. So, here at Faith, I'm going to be... Adding on to these talks at the end, what does this mean for Faith Lutheran Church today? So please be, be thinking of questions, because as Dr. Rosenblatt has taught me, uh, both at college and here, uh, one of the best ways we can get the most out of this is for you guys to help guide me where we're going. What do you guys want to hear about? And I'll give you uh, the basic uh, background. Now, today's the talk is called, and the, and the series is called, Christianity in America, not Lutheranism in America. We're looking at that strange beast that is American Christianity. It is something different in many ways from the historic Christian church. That's me judging there. Okay, I can give you the facts, but it's it's true. Now, it's not to say that Lutherans haven't been an integral part in Christianity in America. Lutherans have certainly had an impact. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, pietism, whether we want to call that Lutheranism or not, pietism has had a a very big... I see someone saying, no, no, it's not. There are very different kinds of pietism, but it had a a giant influence on American culture. And and someone uh, that I mentioned said that the emergent church, where we'll be finishing, is nothing but postmodern pietism. And so we'll certainly be coming back to this Lutheran influence. Uh, But I also mentioned before that one uh, very good historian remarked or said that the Lutherans in America have been remarkably unremarkable. And he meant that, I believe, as something of a dig. And it's something that I kind of like. We are remarkably unremarkable unremarkable. Now, that I don't think is necessarily a condemnation. We have a doctrine of two kingdoms, we have a theology of the cross, and this sometimes makes us unnoticeable, not that spectacular. These doctrines do not make us passive or or quietist, but sometimes Lutherans tend to be the last to congratulate themselves, and, and that's not a bad thing. It must also be noted, as we get into this, just just giving you the background of the Lutheran part of of American Christianity, is that Lutherans are not in the minority at all. Now, this could get me in all sorts of trouble, but depending on how we want to classify religious bodies in America, we've got to play with the classifications. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is the largest confessional church Protestant body in America. The largest confessional Protestant body. That is, what churches still today, and there are many, hold to confessions, not just statements of faith, but actually time-tested confessions. Well, the Lutheran Church does, as do many others. The Lutheran Church is the largest. So we are not some strange group in the corner here in the LCMS. Now, if we include all generally Protestant church bodies, uh, the LCMS would be number two uh, to the Southern Baptists. And if one wanted to be very generous, I don't know how generous I'm, I'm feeling. I guess I was pretty generous when I typed this. You could say that if we allow in a bunch of other churches uh, that are generally Protestant-ish, ish, ish, ish we're still the sixth largest, so the LCMS is still quite large when we, when we even add in uh, some of the churches that I pass uh, on the way down to faith. But despite the size of the LCMS, there have been plenty of critics. Billy Graham, you probably have heard this, called the, the Lutherans the sleeping giant. Oh, you Lutherans, if only you would find a big stadium and hold like a crusade, get a rock band and... Save people, then you you 'd be doing something, but what you 're a sleeping giant why aren 't you doing this well it 's because we 're remarkably unremarkable Sorry, Billy, but what Billy Graham is doing, and i 'm not condemning some of the very good things that American evangelicals have done, and I want to be very clear about that, and I will be clear about that. Uh, Lutherans were something else, and that 's not necessarily what we 're looking about. Uh, Mark Knoll, who I think is the historian of historians. Uh, he is not a Lutheran, but he understands Lutheranism. I actually put this uh, on your handout. I don't know if I have this quote, but he says uh, in a not-so-nice statement <clears throat> from the, the LCMS, the Lutherans in America, from one perspective, they can look like mildly exotic ethnics, sort of like Mennonites, only more numerous. <laughs> All right. Uh, he's got his small digs at us. But he's written a few things that are going to be very helpful for us as we transition into looking at the church in America, American Christianity. And Noel Im- says two things. and I, These things are two th- important things, so I put them on that handout. You can throw it away when we're done. I don't you know, make paper airplanes. But these are important things to look at. He says, Lutherans can have a greater impact or understand themselves better in the American Christian scene, which is the end game of these talks, if they do two things. First of all, Mark Knoll, this gentleman who is not himself a Lutheran, says Lutherans must remain Lutheran. He's calling us out. He's calling out maybe some churches with other initials. He's calling out maybe churches with our initials that have ceased to be really Lutheran. And so here this non-Lutheran says, hey Lutherans, you're something different. You're not American Christians. I don't agree with your theology, but if you're going to give us anything, stay Lutheran. And then secondly, he says, uh, the other condition is that we must, Lutherans must learn how to speak Lutheranism with an American accent. Lutheranism with an American accent. This has nothing to do with me pointing at Uve and saying, "Uve, come come now, get, get, get your American accent." No, not at all. What he means is we have to somehow translate what we're doing, how we talk, in certain situations, into Americanese. I'm not going to tell you how to do this. Uh, it can get you in trouble, but it's, it's worth uh, getting out of our, our little enclave that's important to keep, to talk to others, to talk to evangelicals, and hopefully through these talks we'll understand American Christianity a little bit better. Let me give you one example. There's a, there's a, a term that I think Lutherans are, uh, that we don't use very often, and sometimes for good reason, uh, and, and that is born again. Uh, for those of you that were alive in the 70s, um, I had a couple months there. Um, if if you were uh, alive in the '70s, you remember with Jimmy Carter, right? This was a a big thing, being being born again. That became the phrase, and so many confessional groups we sort of backed off that born again talk. That's that's for the evangelicals. Now, as I mentioned before, I am a uh, I was a young adult uh, convert. I can't tell you exactly when I was born again. There was no lightning or fairies or anything happening. I. Uh, but if someone was to ask about my son, when was he born again? I could say, oh, easy, June 14th, 2009. Now, I don't know if that's going to go over very well with the evangelical, but we can use the same language. And so that's what Mark Knoll means by translating, by speaking Lutheranism with an American accent. But here's the problem, and historically, this is what's happened to Lutherans who have engaged just a little too much with American culture. Speaking with a Lutheran accent, the accent goes away and we soon have an American theology. We're no longer translating American, uh, Lutheranism, Lutheranism into American accent, but we're embracing um, American theology. And Noel once again states that towards the end of the 20th century, what happened to the Lutherans? He says, unfortunately now, Lutherans may have their eccentricities, but they are, on the whole, quite ordinarily American. And I think that's a condemnation, and as we look at the American church over these next few weeks. So this is the struggle that we're going to be looking at through the lens of American history. Lutherans as something different, in a good sense. Let me just give you a few more quotes from other historians because I think they'll help frame our minds. We are told, once again, this is Mark Knoll, not a Lutheran. He says, Lutherans are in a position to teach a much sounder view of the past. This is this little section where he praises Lutheran historians. And so, of course, I want to, you know, tell you guys to read those books. Um, He says Lutherans uh, have been trained to study history, and they know something about the long view of history. And, And therefore, the Lutherans should be insulated against the instability of innovation and the overconfidence of ignorance. Many of America's most energetic Christian leaders have have cried virtually with the exact same words together, I have found something new. You must accept this or be lost. This is how the American prophet now speaks. Against this lust for novelty, the Lutheran sense of history stands as a sober witness. So that's something that the Lutheran Church historically can offer. In in place of well-conceived and deliberate confessions, Americans prefer hastily constructed statements of faith or simply rely on conventional wisdom. So, what has all this been? A very long prologue. I apologize. It's been a very long prologue to explain to you as clear as possible why we are looking at what we are looking at and why I think this is important and not just some sort of uh, you know eccentric professor talking uh, mumbo-jumbo. Uh, and it might seem like that in just a few minutes, so hold on tight. And so, in a very simple manner, I'm going to take you on a brisk tour of American Christianity. From the Puritans to the Mega and the Emergent Church, as I said, this will not be judgment-free as a historian, but also a confessing Lutheran. I will, do, I will be doing what my training has taught me to do to be a professor, to listen, to read, to judge, and then to speak. So today what I want to do, very briefly, is I want to tie in those last sections where we talked about the Reformation, the 16th century, pietism, I want to tie that into where we're going now. There's a connection. Earlier in the summer, we looked at that schism in, in the, the in Lutheranism between Pietism and, and Orthodoxy, and I made mention of one historical event. And this historical event, every time I don't know I, I don't know what's wrong with my students. Every time I mention this one event and how important it is, they all roll their eyes. And if you went to one of my students and said, "What is Dr. Van is always talking about?" and they'll like, oh, say, "The Thirty Years' War." Oh, every once in a while the 30 Years War. I say that's because it's so important. It's like the most important war ever. I know there are no Nazis or bombs or whatever, but it's really, really important. Sometimes I'll just tell them they're Nazis, so they'll listen to me for a bit. The 30 Years War, It's pre. No, it's 1618 to 1648. This marks the end of the Reformation. It starts out as a religious war and then becomes a modern nation-state war. And it causes all of these religious groups in Europe to start to spread out. Now, the Thirty Years' War was absolutely devastating in many parts of Europe. Uh, As much as a, a third to half of the population was wiped out, religious groups went into exile, and all of a sudden these little enclaves of Lutherans in Germany, of Calvinists in Geneva and France, all started spreading out. And they went to particular places. Many would go to... Um, The Netherlands, a place of of moderate uh, religious freedom. And many, during the Thirty Years' War, went to England. Because England had a a relatively long reign of stability when it came to religious persecution. There was all sorts of religious persecution earlier in the 16th century, in the mid-16th century. But England was a place where many German pietists, Lutherans, Calvinists, all sorts of different groups came to England and to Scotland. And then where would many of them find their way? To the shores of the Atlantic coast. So it's very important to understand where these first American Christians came from. We know that that Lutheran pietist works were translated into English. Johann Arndt, the best-selling author of the uh, 17th and 18th century was a bestseller in England and spawned all these imitators. They wanted to write about true spiritual Christianity. And they found welcome cousins in the English Puritans. And so this movement would uh, come to America, where in the crucible of a, a vast new country with harsh conditions and eccentric leaders would create a, a type of congr- a Christianity a conglomeration of pietism separatism and individualism that is still evident to anyone who looks at the Christian church in America today so I apologize if you had a uh, you know a, a, a football coach as a history teacher in high school and that's the last time you ever took history and you said i 'm done with that all that names and dates mumbo jumbo I, I put it down there and i 'm going to just bear i 'm going to touch on it and I'm sorry and if you want to check your blackberries now that's okay In England, you've heard of Henry VIII? I am, I am, big guy, lots of wives, some of them lost their heads. Okay, he's important. Edward, you don't know about him. He was called the sickly, he died. Then, there's Mary. Mary Tudor. We have a a delicious drink named after her. Bloody Mary? Yes, there you go. Ah, The Lutheran's like, oh, that's got alcohol. Okay, now, (laughs) here we are. Bloody Mary, what was she? She was a Catholic. And and while Henry VIII started his own church, she was was wanted to make a, a relationship with the Pope again after it was severed. And so she started um, uh, murdering, killing anyone with Protestant affinities. And so if you were a Protestant, what did you do if you lived in England? You lost your head, or you left. You went somewhere else. England was not the place to be. Of course, Mary dies. And who becomes the queen? After Mary, another famous one, that's Queen Elizabeth. The Virgin Queen, there was a movie that is very, very ah-historical. I don't recommend it for early modern English history, but I guess it's it's good or something. Uh, but Queen Elizabeth. Now, Queen Elizabeth wasn't a hardcore Protestant, but she welcomed and brought back in Protestantism to uh, England and did much to get rid of Catholicism. Made it a place of relative religious freedom for Protestants. And then, of course, when she dies, she doesn't have a child, she's called the Virgin Queen. A new king comes into place, and he's not a tutor, as a matter of fact, he's a Scot. Ooh, didn't make the English happy. That was King James. Maybe you've never heard of him, but he's got a Bible named after him. Alright? That's that King James. And I know, I think, did I put on your list? I probably did, which is totally snooty. On your list, does it say King James the sixth, the first? Oh, gee, okay. In Scotland, there had already been five King James. And so when he became king, they're like, he's the sixth James. And in England, they're like, we've never had a James. He's the first James. And so that's how you can, he's the sixth and the first. And if you're in Scotland or England, you can tell the difference between English and Scots um, by uh, their level of drunkenness. Um, how nice they are, but also whether they call him James the I or the sixth. I shouldn't have, I'm sorry. Nevertheless, James himself too what, had an affinity for Protestants. And so we have from uh, Queen Elizabeth all the way through King James, and I put the dates on there, we have a period of religious toleration, or at least Protestant toleration. And so this 30 years war, which begins to bubble and rage Well, England is the place to be. England is the place where we can go. And so we have all sorts of churches, usually referred to as strangers' churches, because they were in different languages. There were all sorts of what we call denominations in England at the time, rubbing shoulders, and when they could understand each other, ideas. Let me judge, usually bad ideas. And they would sort of meet together, and then a couple things started happening. Well, this first group, and you know all about this first group because we're taught sort of silly stories about them, um, was the, the early Puritans. And the early Puritans, of course, they come over to America on the Mayflower, and they met Indians, and we make headdresses and turkeys out of our hands, and, you know, the kids do that at school. Now, when did the Mayflower come to America. This is important. I'm not just being academic here. When did the Mayflower set sail for America? I'll tell you. 1620. Who was the king of England at the time? Ooh, I've got a list there with names and dates. See, they are helpful. Okay, I've got a list there. I can look at the names and dates. King James. First, or the sixth. King James. He was not... A a wild uh, uh, sort of persecuting Catholic. He was relatively open, but these first Puritans—the one that we all have to learn, the ones we all have to learn about in the fourth grade and making corn and the like—they were really separatists. They were the true Puritans who said, "Uh, "Yeah, King James, this this isn't. I mean, uh, thanks for being Protestant, (laughs) but really, you're not uh, as pure as us. See you later." And so that begins the the, the beginning of this separatist, individualist, pure, that's in America, 1618. I'm sorry, 1620. And so we'll we'll talk uh, about that. Now, the other group that we want to understand as we get towards where we're, we're going, and just the, the four characters I want you to know, and I think the more important characters came over in 1630. Who's the king in 1630? Charles. Charles himself was a Catholic. And he, he persecuted uh, Protestants and was uh, such a, a pain in the side that eventually he got his head cut off. And that leads to Oliver Cromwell taking over, and then Oliver Cromwell's son, he messes things up, and then another guy. But Charles is a Catholic. And so it makes sense that if you're a Protestant in 1630, you're gonna take off. Just like you took off when Mary was around. And so this group, this second wave that came over in 1630, they were not as wildly separatist, hey, you're just not as good as no, they had real reason to get out of there. And they were able to get royal charters, and I can explain that to you some other time. To come to America, and while we all know the Mayflower, I don't care much about the Mayflower. I let my I say your fourth grade teacher probably did a great job, and stay there. The Arbella, the Arbella, in 1630. The Arbella comes to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. This was a group led by John Winthrop. You've all heard of William Bradford, Mayflower. He's on there. Good job, guy. But it is John Winthrop who is central to the history of early American Christianity. You may have heard of the, the text written, the agreement written on board the Arbella before they came to Massachusetts called A Model of Christian Charity. And if you don't know that name or that, you've never heard of that little tiny piece, it's way more important than that Mayflower Compact. That thing is really insignificant. I mean, you know, it is. A model of Christian charity. And if you don't know the text, I bet you know this reference. John Winthrop calls for these new Englishmen in America to set up a city on a hill. Obviously using biblical references for this new place. Now, he wrote a lot more. And one of the things that Puritans loved to do was quote the Old Testament poorly. They had a very bad hermeneutic. And and Pastor Rody would straighten them out. uh, Because everything, this is part of American Christianity. You read something, and guess what that's about? Me. My country. Oh, that, Oh, I know, da-da-da-da, that means me. When God is talking about the coming Christ and doing this or that, oh no, he's really talking about my life. This is a tradition that we, that we see all over American Christianity today, and it begins with Winthrop with this little throwaway about a city on a hill. Now, obviously, that's a New Testament reference, but he's full with these references that, no, this is, this is who we are. We are a special people. There, there's a, a very fringe group, which I'm not going to get into, but they're called British Israelites. They're the, the far extreme. They believe that the ten tribes that were scattered all came to Scotland and England and formed the Puritans, and then they came to America. And so were the true chosen people of God in America. Yikes. Uh, but they're a small minority, but they're a cool story, but not for now.
1: Okay, we're gonna pause the lecture right there. We're gonna pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talk back at or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
2: your righteousness
1: surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: It's... Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey! Do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst. Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical store. Sound the alarm. You're gonna be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching! Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy! These aren't your pastors' puns, they are righteous puns! Piety puns Sinner, saint, sinner, saint Prayers lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like Slow down they will be like, no And roundhouse kick her in the face with your b- Bible pants You know, so much holiness, holiness Just praying all the time Power, praying, power, preaching, power, praising, power, fasting, power, meditating, power, laughing, power, spawning, chester. Yo, know, so much chester! Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, and they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People will watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah in a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they'll get deported back to, to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gabble on your afterlife. Jesus! Try Bible Thirst. The energy that will make you ah. holy! Ah.
1: Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk. For those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to FightingForTheFaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. This is an interesting lecture, by the way. (laughs) Warning, American Christianity isn't necessarily historic Christianity. You're going to keep finding that out as we do this lecture. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support this important radio outreach, we truly could use your help. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, donate. The other says, join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That's on a monthly basis. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, let's continue with this uh, lecture that we're hearing on Christianity in America, the history of Christianity in America, uh, with this introduction, long introduction, as well as uh, a look at Puritans in the New World by Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis. Here we go. Here's part two.
2: So, this is how American Christianity begins. With fleeing, either for good reason or for not so good reason, to set up a pure church, a real church, a spiritual church, because we're guided by God, and how are we going to know, right? We want to know this, right? We want to know if what we're doing is right. And so, what does what does um, um, Paul Paul say uh, that that What do we seek? Signs and miracles, or was that Jesus? Pastor Rodi, help me. Jesus. Okay, thank you. Gee, they're very they're both very important in the New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus more important. That's why I'm not a pastor. Okay, so, um, <laughs> thank you. We want miracles, we want signs, right? And so, so this is what Winthrop wanted. He said, how are we going to know if we truly are the blessed people in the city on a hill? Well, if this country does well. If this country grows. If our economy booms. Then obviously God is blessing us. Now, they didn't necessarily take into account uh, the, the just simple things like raw materials uh, and space. Uh, And so, uh, as you probably know, America did quite well for itself. Until, like, last week or so, when things started (laughs) to go down. But But things went well. And so, what was that a sign to the Puritans? That was a sign and a wonder that they were the chosen people of God. How do you know American Christianity is the right kind of Christianity? Because America works so well. Now... I'm a big fan of America. I'm a big fan of the West. But here, there's a problem when we get our nationalism tied up with our theology. Let me tell you one thing that's not going to happen as I start to descend towards my, the landing strip. Um, let me tell you something that's not going to happen. I, I'm talking about Christianity in America and American Christianity and if you're excited for this, I'm sorry, I am not going to be talking about politics hardly at all. One, I don't think it's, it's, it's fitting for where we are, but also because I don't want to follow the example, and we're going to be looking at Americans in politics, but I won't be commentating. I won't be giving a commentary on it. Because one of the things that I believe to be wrong with American Christianity is, is what C.S. Lewis pointed out last century. He said that Christians break the third commandment. For us, that's the second commandment. He had the wrong numbering. Uh, that, that we break that commandment, taking the, the Lord's name in vain, that we break that commandment more than we think we do. And he's pointing right at American Christian prophet slash preachers. Now, Pastor Rohde, or I'm sure our students, or our young people in catechism, could tell us all about taking the Lord's name in vain and exactly what that means, right? Because they're, they're, uh, you know, the women are strong, the men are good-looking, and the children are above average. So they could explain to you what the Lord's name in vain is. Uh, and certainly, um, that it, it has a, a whole number of things. But what C.S. Lewis is saying is that American Christianity and various uh, Christian leaders break that all the time. Because what is taking the Lord's name in vain? When you talk where God hasn't spoken. All you have to do, don't stay at home on Sunday. You should come to church. But uh, if you are at home, you're sick or something, turn on the the TV and watch the television pastors. What are they doing? They're breaking the commandment. If God hasn't spoken to whether or not uh, we should, um, you know, raise the debt ceiling or not or what have you, then shut your yap, or at least say I'm speaking on behalf of myself and not God. And that's one of the problems with American Christianity. It's going to make a relationship with politics. I'm not going to talk about politics or which is the right way or the wrong way, but I want to, we're going to be looking at this strange thing, and especially because what happens with these charters in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and this is where we're going to end, is a strange mix of politics and religion. And I don't want to get into politics and religion, uh, despite teaching a, a class called Politics and Religion at the university. Um, it's for, that's that stuff. Um, if you look at the Mayflower Compact, or more importantly, a model of Christian charity by John Winthrop, you will see that these are political as they are theological. In their minds, the two were intertwined. And this is actually part of... Well, Christendom, Western Christendom for centuries, that it always had gone together. But it became quite explicit in the early 17th century, those long, long time ago in the 1600s. Who cares about that stuff? This is where it started. So to understand, to answer that question of how did we get to where we are, that's where we want to look. And so rather than just sort of reciting, well, this person and this person and this person, I'll, I'll let you do it yourself, but I, I think you want to know four characters, or, or if I think five. Bradford, he comes over on the Mayflower. John Winthrop, he's the Arbella. Thomas Hooker and John Cotton. Why are they important? Well, I put some stuff on there if you're interested. But they ca- these are the preachers. These are the Billy Grahams. And so what do they do? They, they use the Old Testament references. We are a special chosen political-slash-theological people. They jam this in the ears of the early Americans. And the fathers tell their children, and the children tell their children, and all of a sudden we get in the, the mess we have today. And then Roger Williams. Roger Williams, very interesting character, goes to Rhode Island. He's kicked out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He gets involved with a lady, or gets involved, he... He's. You use his name in the same sentence as you use Ann Hutchinson's name. Uh, Ann Hutchinson was seen as an antinomian, and if you went through catechism, they can explain what that is. Uh, but he's seen as not pure enough, and so he's kicked out. He goes to Rhode Island, uh, and he starts this, this even more radical separatist. Now, not only are the Puritan separatists, but he's more separatist, and so he's going to go to Rhode Island, later William Penn will come, he'll go to Pennsylvania, and all of a sudden, what does the American Christian scene look like? A, a mix of this sort of Puritan spirituality mixed with a particular kind of politics, of separatism, of individualism, what we might refer to as theonomy, what is theonomy? Theos, God, namos, law. What kind of law should we have? These charters, oftentimes, or groups that didn't have charters, uh, would make up their own constitutions. And so they thought, well, how, what, how should we live? Uh, I don't know, Old Testament's got a bunch of answers. Let's do that. They were more confident than most Lutherans as to, Uh, how they could fulfill the law. And so they tried to set up this city on a hill based on God's law. That's called theonomy. And there is some today. Radical separatism. This is on the sheet here. These are the major themes. Radical separatism, but corporate. So it's not just the guy, the monk, going out to the monastery and being quiet by himself, but it's a whole group of people going to one place, oftentimes in large droves. But it's separatism. It's a break from the past. It's individualism. You might just not pay attention here. Individualism, did you know, wasn't even a word until about 1835? It wasn't even in the dictionary. It was a made-up word. You know who made it up? This guy called Alexis de Tocqueville. You know why he made it up? Because he was trying to describe Americans. That's where the word comes from. It's a democracy in America, fantastic book. But he's looking at these Americans, and he has some very nice things to say, but he's trying to, he's a Frenchman, he's trying to come up with the right word, da-da-da-da-da, individual, individualistic, individualism. That's us. That's the American Christian scene. And then finally, the Old Testament references and allusions to identity is even pilgrims, right, even the term pilgrim. Has these certain uh, connotations as the new Israelites. This is so common that their leaders were Moses and were the Israelites, and England or Germany, that's Egypt. Very, very strange. Can you read the Bible in certain ways? Uh, talk to the pastor, he'll tell you about the different uh, ways of reading scripture. Um, but it, they, they emphasize too much that the Bible's all about them. All right, I'm going to stop there to do just a few minutes of questions. I, I do want to tell you, however, um, that at the end of each week, I'm going to tell you where we're going. So you can either not come, if you don't if that sounds boring, or you know we're coming. Next week, we're going to move closer to our time, and we're going to time period, and we're going to talk about rationalism and revivalism and how these two things come together in the 19th century. And if you want to look at American Christianity today and what's weird about American Christianity comes out of revivalism. There's some cool, wacky stories I'll be telling there. So uh, if you have any questions, let's, let's just sort of open this up um, like uh, Dr. Rosenblatt does. If you have certain questions or you say, hey, can we eventually go here or, or what have you, um, I've been going quickly. So uh, please, let's just take a few minutes, uh, five minutes or so, uh, and I'll answer uh, whatever questions you might have. Hey, Professor Dean, how are you doing?
1: Just uh, wondering, where were the Lutherans? You're talking about the Puritans, and where, where, do they, where were they fitting in with all this
2: yeah, stuff you know taking place? You know what's interesting? Inventions and steamboats. Want to know why? Okay, <laughs> the Lutherans they, they came over, I just think they are. All right, next question. No, because what happens is there were some Lutherans that came over, Mühlberg and, and Zinzendorf, well, Zinzendorf Lutheran. They do come over in, in a very small number. But most of them will come over when things start to get really dicey in Germany, which is later. And you know what happened between when the Puritans came and when the Germans came? Something was invented. The steamboat. So what could you do? You could come to America quicker, and you didn't have to go to that crowded eastern seaboard. You could go around Florida and up the Mississippi, and where do Lutherans like to go? St. Louis, exactly. And and so they come to the Midwest, and so they've always been sort of insulated. So where were the Lutherans? Many of them were in Germany, and then eventually when they do come, they go and hide in the Midwest, like good Lutherans today. (laughs) Except us. We're in California fighting the good fight. All right, we've got a question right here.
0: I just wondered why you didn't include the Roman Catholics in the Christianity.
2: Okay. Okay. This is why I said, okay, and this is, this, is, this is, you guys are gonna ask me questions that are Pastor Rodi should answer. Uh, th- this is um, why I said we're the largest confessional Protestant body. We're the largest confessional Protestant body. Um, Roman Catholics outnumber all religious bodies in America by far. It's about 60 million of them. The second largest is the Baptists, Southern Baptists, at about 20 million. So that's a huge gap. Um, I, that's why I put in Protestant. Um, that, that's because the the Catholic Church is not a Protestant body, and we're looking at at America, which is a Protestant, primarily Protestant country. Although there are certainly a large number of of Catholics, but their influence in the beginning was not there at all. There was no, almost zero, Catholic influence on the beginning of American Christianity, and American Christianity is is not Catholic. Um, so that's why I put in Protestant there. Yes, Catholics are the largest religious body. Are there is, are there Christians in the Catholic Church? Absolutely. Is Catholic doctrine Christian doctrine? Ask the pastor. He'll say no. He'll say no. Okay. And that's judging. That's just judging by confession. Okay? You can do that. Okay, let's take uh, one more question, and then we can, you know.
0: Just a comment. Okay. In, uh, I believe in the state's early constitutions, Roman Catholics were not allowed to be involved in government. And yeah, Jewish people, even that was either, even further off the map. Yeah, yeah.
2: You didn't want, uh, Roman Catholics, uh, no, no Roman Catholics allowed. Uh, and that comes actually from uh, James I, the sixth, and, and then Charles, where the parliament would say, listen, you've got to sign a, an oath uh, saying you're Protestant, because if we get a Catholic in here, and this goes back to 16th century politics, you can't run a good government with, with this or that. So Roman Catholics couldn't be a part of the government. Now, Roger Williams... Uh, is the first to set up a, a separatist camp in Rhode Island, and then William Penn will come later and set up Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and, and these will become places for religious separatists and for religious toleration, and I'll tell you, that's a good thing for politics. It's a good thing for a country. Um, it doesn't mean they're all right. But politically... Um, we, we had something right there. But in the beginning, yeah, there is no Roman Catholic influence. And so um, to, here, you're right. They, they, today there's 60 million of them, but American Christianity is a strange conglomeration of Protestantism, Puritism, and Pietism. And what I'm going to do in the next few weeks is hopefully, with some sort of uh, clarity, draw all of these together so we can say, where are we now and how did we get here? And how are we as Lutherans in Capistrano Beach different, and what kind of word might we have to say in our community? That's today, and I'll see you next Sunday. Have a good day.
1: Well, there you go. Great lecture. Very thought provoking, very interesting. Yeah, guys like uh Stephen Furtick and others who, and you know, Mark Batterson and others who seem to think that you can read your own story into the Old Testament. Well, they've got a Uh, Well, at least they've got a historical uh, tradition that they can fall back on. The problem is is that that tradition doesn't go back to the beginning of Christianity. It goes back to a particular um, set of people who were separatist and individualistic in their approach to um, the Bible. Interesting historical note. It explains much, don't you think? That's one of the reasons why when you challenge uh, some of these guys and go, you can't read the Bible that way, they look at you like, what are you talking about? I mean... Every preacher I've ever listened to growing up read the Bible that way. I, what do you mean I can't read the Bible that way? I'm just doing what I what was modeled for me to do. Right. And that's kind of the problem, don't you think? All right. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Visit our website. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. We truly do need your financial support to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world. So, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you would uh, like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.